As Moy mentioned, this uh, concludes our series on Colossians. Uh, I encourage you to look back over the last several weeks. Uh, this, this book, of uh, every book of the Bible, is a treasure of God's Word, but Colossians is certainly no exception. Super high Christology, very powerful, strong doctrine in the first two chapters. The second two chapters tend to focus on how we put that doctrine into practice. Uh, the messages that were preached, Justin's last few uh, sermons here, uh, Moy had delivered a great message, Adam, Mike, uh, I encourage you to go back and review those. Now, you might remember last week, uh, Dr. Jeff Brown was here, and he's our pastoral candidate, and I, uh, he preached on Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 9, another great uh, message, uh, it skipped out of the series that we were in. We actually discussed whether he would preach uh, this last bit of uh, Colossians, and he was encouraged to and almost did, but we felt like it felt that it would be a little bit like uh, you know going through somebody's photo album, and so it may not really be a great uh, people you don't know, and how do, you, how do you explain people you don't know? So anyway, he uh, chose a different passage, which I thought was, was excellent. If you're a member, you have a, uh, please vote after service today, uh, either uh, affirm or, or, or uh, t- vote whether to affirm uh, Jeff Brown as our next pastor. Uh, we have one more week before that uh, voting uh, period ends. Uh, and so after this week, we're going to begin a mini-series in Ephesians. And uh, so we're looking forward to, to that. Now, also, um, next week, or in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a uh, baptism uh, on March the 19th before the service. So if there's anyone else who is interested in being baptized, let me know, or let one of us, one of the elders know, or uh, we can arrange that. But we're looking forward to that. We'll also have the Lord's Supper on that day. All right, so as I mentioned, here we are at the end of Colossians. And uh, I feel like after all of the, the, uh, the great material that we have gone through, I feel like we're, we have, we're sitting with Paul, and now he gets out his photo album, and he starts to show you the pictures from his mission trip of all these people that we don't know, and he starts pointing to them and naming them at, to us and laughing to himself <laughs> and uh, you know, shaking his head about memories they have with uh, these various folks. So we get a chance to look at these, uh, these various uh, people that are on Paul's uh, missionary photo album, so to speak. Uh, there's at least 16 people in here, if I count right, and some of them are actually not named. They're just implied. Uh, one... Uh, uh, one is named in almost uh, several is named in several books or several letters that Paul writes. Uh, it, it was referred to in the beginning of this book, Timothy. Paul says this letter is from Paul and Timothy, and yet for one reason or another, here in this final greeting, he doesn't mention that Timothy says hi. I don't know why he said that. Maybe he forgot. I think it's because Timothy was the one holding the camera. Maybe he wasn't in the picture, I guess. Maybe. Well, uh, also, there's uh, an implied. Uh, we are introduced to Barnabas's sister. You'll see that in a minute. And there's one more implied person that Paul points out. It's the very last word in this letter. Look down and see what it is. It's you. It's us. Paul is talking to us. Grace be with you. 
Amen? So we're in his photo album as well today. Bow your heads with me if you would. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter that we have to study. Thank you for these passages of Scripture. Lord, we know that you're the author of everything in this book, this Bible that we have that was a gift from you to show us who you are and to teach us how to live according to your will. And Lord, we ask that you do that for us even now as we open your word, show us what it means and help us to understand it and help us to live by it and help us to be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, let's look at verse uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, Tychicus, and that's how I like to pronounce it, uh, will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved and faithful minister, uh, beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, he will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So uh, in verse 7, this uh, first, uh, first person in the photograph, uh, uh, Tychicus. And um, I did take time to look up the, the true pronunciation, and doesn't look like it to me, but I think it's more like Tuicus, Tuhicus. Anyone know uh, uh, Greek a little bit better than I do? Uh, might be able to pronounce that better, but I think that's uh, how it's actually pronounced. He's actually named six different times in the New Testament, six different times. Uh, you almost don't notice him because he doesn't say anything, but he's always there. In Acts chapter 20, verse 4 is where we first meet him. Uh, he's named as one of a group that are traveling with Paul. Uh, they take the, the land route through Macedonia. When If you go back to Acts 20, it's pretty interesting. Luke and some of the others take the sea route I'm assuming because they didn't want to walk or probably because they had a lot of uh, papers to carry and, and things. So Luke takes the sea route and goes around and meets them in Troas while Paul and a group take the land route through Macedonia. And uh, Tuicus is one of those there. He's uh, described as Asian. Now, when I see that, we think Asian. Uh, that's interesting. Hadn't really seen too many descriptors in uh, the uh, in New Testament, thought this was more Middle Eastern, but we're really talking about Asia Minor, I believe, here. But uh, he traveled through Greece and Macedonia on the, uh, uh, on, and on to Troas with Paul. In Ephesians 6, the description of Tuicus is very similar to the description we have here in Colossians. So let me uh, uh, Go with uh, Ephesians cha- uh, chapter 6 toward the end. He describes Tuicus as a beloved brother, faithful minister in the Lord. He will tell you everything, how I am doing and what I've been doing, how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts, things like this. So do we understand, kind of get a picture of the man Tuicus? He's, he's Paul, hey, for a time, he's right there with Paul standing with Paul. He loves to talk. He loves to tell people things. He loves to share. And he loves to listen to you. Um, The King James Version goes on to, uh, or translates this a little differently, and it's a likely translation that not only will Tuicus share how Paul's doing, but he also will listen to how the Colossians are doing and then come back and report that to Paul. So, he is going to be a messenger of how, 
how, how folks are doing. Now, as, um, let me, uh, as believers, we experience some of this too. When we come together here on Sunday, we get to see each other. But what's one of our favorite things we get to do? It's in a, about half hour, 45 minutes from now, or an hour and a half from now, when we go out into the lobby and we get to visit with each other and tell people, how's your, how's your week been? And you share the things you can't really talk about while we're sitting here on these, uh, in, the, in, the, in the sanctuary together. But out there, we share the struggles we've been going through this week, our praises, our answered prayers, what we've been dealing with. And you'll see, if you're a visitor here, you'll see something that you may not see a lot of times. You'll see people who will stop and pray right where they are in the hallway here as they're talking. If there's something that we share with each other that there's to pray about, you may see that. And this is the kind of thing that Tuicus was doing. Uh, also, in 2 Timothy and Titus, he's mentioned, but just briefly, uh, Tuicus is uh, uh, the one who delivered these letters uh, to uh, Ephesus, to, um, Coloss- to Colossae, and another letter uh, that is mentioned that we don't have uh, we don't have in our hands anymore. A letter to Laodicea. Now, if we uh, move forward then to verse eight. Paul says he has a mission for Tuicus. I sent him for this purpose. And it's this, this mission of letting people know how he's doing. He's giving Tuicus this, this mission to uh, fill, fulfill this. And by that, he will encourage their hearts. Encourage their hearts. Now, I mentioned that Ephesians and Colossians describes Tuicus in a similar fashion. But Paul adds something here in Colossians. He adds another person. He adds Onesimus. Look at that verse, uh, in verse 8, verse 9. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. We find out much more about Onesimus in another letter. This is another letter to Philemon. It's written to a man named Philemon. Uh, we learned that a church would, would meet in the home of Philemon. And we're almost certain that this church is the Colossian church, would meet in the home of Philemon. Now, if you're familiar with that book, just one chapter long, uh, we learned that uh, Paul addresses Philemon, Philemon's likely Philemon's wife, and another person named Archippus, who may have been Philemon's son, but he certainly probably lived in his home. And Archippus is also referred to later on down in this uh, passage. He's another face in a, on this photo that we're looking at. But yes, the, ho- the church probably met in their household. Now, Onesimus, we find out in Philemon, was a bondservant or a slave uh, to Philemon. But he, had, he fled. We don't have all the details about that uh, departure, but he may or may not have stolen some money. There may have been some uh, additional harm or hurt, but eventually Onesimus became a believer in Christ. Probably through Paul's testimony, maybe through someone else's, but still he became a believer. Uh, And he became a co-worker with Paul and his group. And he was there ministering and helping Paul while Paul was in prison. 
Onesimus was not a prisoner, but Paul was. And Onesimus was meeting his needs. And I'm going to borrow a moment uh, or a couple of verses that I uh, highlighted here from the book of Philemon. Let me take a moment here. I said this is our conclusion of, of our study on Colossians. But I'm not sure we can really fully understand the book until we also study the book of Philemon. So I feel like some, at some point in the future, we're going to circle back and pick up on that. Uh, and we'll, we'll go through Philemon. Not yet. We have Ephesians on the calendar after, after this week, but we will come back to this. But these are just a couple of snippets from uh, the book of Philemon. Chapter t- uh, verse 10 in Philemon. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, says Paul. Skipping down to verse 15, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, Paul, receive him as you would receive me. Receive him as you would receive me, as a brother. The same description that Paul gives for to, for, to Tuicus, he gives to Onesimus, a brother. There are no gradations, there are no distinctions, there are no classifications in Christ. We are brothers and sisters under Christ. He also says that Onesimus is one of you, not an outsider, but one of you. Same as the Colossian, Colossian Christians. In uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. One in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, these are you know, outward distinctions. Sure, you can identify someone who has a Jewish background or a Greek background or maybe any other uh, any other group. You may be able to uh, uh, have an, an outward uh, view to understand, you know, whether someone had a, a certain status or whether someone was male or female. But what Paul was mentioning was each and every person who is a believer in Christ has no separation from Christ in that situation. We are all one in Christ. Now, he combines the mission for Tuicus and Onesimus together. I believe that he's more than implying, he's telling what Onesimus' true mission in Christ can be and should be, that he can do the same thing that Tuicus is doing. He can be a messenger too, that he will tell you, that they together will tell you everything that has taken place here. All right, let's look on in verse 10, chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and we'll see the next, per, the next person in the photograph. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. <laughs> Aristarchus. Boy, that's a great name. I'll tell you what. Aristarchus. Anybody in here named Aristarchus? Uh, dad's... My mom's dad's, anybody name their kids Aristarchus? I think that's a good one. You ought to look into it. 
Think of the nicknames you could have. I mean, that's a good name. Aristarchus. Yeah. Okay, cool. The name means uh, the best ruler. The best ruler. Pretty impressive, huh? It's a great name. <clears throat> I'm not having any kids that I know of, so I don't have any left over. But maybe one of y'all can do that. Uh, but we don't really hear much else about Aristarchus. Um, in uh, Acts chapter 19, uh, we have to, well, we don't hear much about him here. If you turn back to Acts chapter 19, there is quite a bit, and, it, and I'll just briefly summarize because the story is really too long to, to read a passage. Uh, Paul is in Ephesus, and he's doing what he always does, telling people about Jesus. He's telling the Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of every prophecy in the Old Testament, that he's the Messiah, that he's anointed to forget to redeem sin, and that his mission was accomplished when he died and was buried and rose again. Now, to the Greeks, he's telling that this is what you this is this is what you need. You don't need all these other gods. They're fake anyway. Christ alone is sovereign Lord, and it causes quite a ruckus. Uh, the, in Acts chapter 19, we see that Demetrius the silversmith is angry and gets up and riles up the crowd and says, "Look, this what Paul and these others are teaching." is uh, disrupting our business. Demetrius made shrines to uh, a Greek god, goddess, I think, named Art Artemis. And it was spoiling their business because no one was wanting to buy their shrines anymore as they were converting to Christianity. And he, was, he really riled, riled up the mob against him. And uh, it was, became very dangerous. Well, they, Aristarchus was one, named as one in the group with Paul that was ushered into the theater of Ephesus where the mob had control and it was unclear as to what was going to happen. It looked like they might all have might, might all be losing their lives pretty soon. And Aristarchus was right there with him. I can just see Paul pointing at him and says, yeah, and he was there with us in, in Ephesus. And guess what? Even now, he's here in prison with me. He's a fellow prisoner. All these others I'm telling you about, they're, they're not in prison. They're free right now. Aristarchus and I, we're eating the prison meal together. Uh, Aristarchus was also, he was a Macedonian. He was a Thessalonica. He's also mentioned in uh, Philemon as well. Now, uh, the next name on the list is Mark. And in the version that I like to read, it's mentioned that he's translated that Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. But the word cousin there could be translated, it's family member. Uh, it's a, a kin, someone who's akin to Barnabas. In fact, if the King James, I think, uh, may, I know the King James mentions that it's a sister's son to Barnabas, which is another word of saying that he was Barnabas's nephew. And so I told you, the one who's not named is Mark's mother. If you look in, uh, in Acts chapter 12, you'll find that she is named. And you know what? We've all, we've all probably read over her name and passed over it quickly. Do you remember when, they were, when Peter was in prison and they were praying that he would be let out of prison and an angel came and 
got Peter to stand up and the chains fell off of him and he walked right out of the prison. And he said, well, I guess I'm free. <laughs> I guess it wasn't a vision. And he just said, well, where will I go? Well, I'll go over here where they're praying. And he knocked on the door and they didn't even recognize him. Remember that? That was Mark's mother's house. And her name is Mary. Very common name. But this is also, uh, so that's the person, uh, that's the house that Peter went to where they were praying for, for Peter to come out of prison. So uh, Mark, this is the same John Mark that traveled with uh, Paul and Barnabas, the same one who wrote, uh, or who was the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Paul mentions now that... Uh, let me not get too far ahead of my notes here. So Mark is the gospel, the writer of the gospel of Mark, the one that Paul and Barnabas, oh, you might re recall this as well. Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about Mark. You remember that? They had a sharp disagreement and they actually se separated ways and they stopped traveling together because of this disagreement they had about whether Mark should travel with them. Um. And because now uh, I had forgotten or never knew it until I studied to, to, uh, to teach this passage that uh, of that family connection between Barnabas and Mark, which may explain one reason why Barnabas was so connected to him and had uh, you know, some de the desire to, to have him, uh, felt a, an obligation to, to uh, look after Mark's uh, whereabouts in that situation. Um, Oh, yes. Okay, so I've always told you about Mark. I told you about his, his mother. Now, let's look at Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is one, a name that's a lot more familiar to all of us. I think uh, there's a lot more uh, that uh, related about Barnabas in the New Testament, in Acts for sure. I'm just going to hit a few of the high points here. Um, the first uh, time we see Mark is, uh, I'm sorry, the first time we see Barnabas is in Acts chapter 4. Uh, we, where we read that his, his, his given name was Joseph. And so his name is actually Joseph, but he was called Barnabas as a nickname, which means son of encouragement. The apostles called Barnabas son of encouragement, most likely because he was living that out. He behaved in such a way that he constantly was encouraging others. Uh, when we first read about him, uh, he's described that he is a Levite. He's a Levite, and he's a native of Cyprus. You might recall the tribe of Levi was the tribe where the priests came from. It's not known whether or not Barnabas actually was active in the priesthood. Maybe not. He owned a field and sold the field and gave the money to the apostles. He was all in, all in to serve Christ, to serve the gospel mission. Well, you remember Paul's uh, miraculous conversion was so unusual because Paul had been the one who was hunting Christians down to try to put them in prison. When he came to Jerusalem, the Christians were unwilling to meet with Paul. They were afraid to meet with Paul, and it was Barnabas who took him, Acts chapter 9, verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, 
and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And they accepted him based on the actions and the testimony and the, 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 rep, the representation that Barnabas gave of him. Now, uh, another thing that Barnabas did was after uh, Barnabas or after Paul had left Jerusalem for his own safety, they sent him to Tarsus because he was uh, preaching so boldly. They sent him to Tarsus. And uh, then they'd, uh, the Christians in Jerusalem had heard there were so many new Christians in, in Antioch that they sent Barnabas to check it out. And Barnabas went to Antioch to check it out. Now, Antioch, if you look at the map, was a coast city uh, on the, along the Mediterranean rim. And it was one of the last ones. Did I move all this? Am I good? This thing's like, I think I moved it. Pardon me for a second. All right, I'm back. So uh, Antioch is one of the coast cities. If you look at the map in the back of your Bible, you might see this, that Antioch is one of the coast cities before you get to Tarsus. So when Paul got to Antioch, or I'm sorry, when Barnabas got to Antioch and saw all these Christians, something about that uh, impressed him to the point, well, let me just read what, the, what it says in Acts chapter 11. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was, listen to how he's described, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. All right, brothers and sisters, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great for us to be described the same way, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith? Barnabas saw a great many people were added to the Lord. So what did Barnabas do? Acts 11, verse 25 so Barnabas went to Tarsus and looked for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Barnabas, now a second time, is going to now to find Paul and bring him into Antioch. He says, look, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here, and Paul, we need you. I need you here. We need you here in Antioch. So for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is a ministry memory that Paul and Barnabas share together. Now, in our photograph album, why, why is Paul pointing out Barnabas? He's not there with them right now. But remember, this is a letter to the Colossians. He's saying, look, when Barnabas, Barnabas may come to you, and I'm telling you now, you can trust him. Accept him if he comes. Now, do you remember, let's remember the theme of this book. Remember, Colossae is a place that Paul had never been. And the, 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 the elder of the church there was Epaphras, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And so Paul was made aware of a heresy that was entering the church in Colossae. And there may have been many heresies, but one particular was that some people had, were still stuck in believing that 
the rituals and rules of the Jewish communities that required certain purification rites, certain laws to be obeyed, certain, uh, cl- certain types of clothing to be worn, certain types of ways to wash your hands before you eat, certain things you could eat, certain things you couldn't eat, a lot of very technical rules. Each of these rules had to do with, with cleanliness, spiritual cleanliness and holiness and perfection. And Christ did away with all of those things. Christ said, what goes in your mouth doesn't make you impure. It's, the, it's what comes out of your heart and in your mind. That's what Christ said. Well, the Judaizers, after the church was growing, had began to come to these new Christians that were full of Jews and Gentiles and said, you've got to still obey these Jewish laws. In fact, they were known by the name of the circumcision, but circumcision alone wasn't the only mark they were looking for. They said, you've got to obey these laws. And Paul was warning them, Stay away from that heresy. Stay away from that. So my guess is that he wanted to make sure that when they saw Barnabas, who was a a Jew converted to Christianity, they might worry if he was one of those. Paul's saying, no, he's a good guy. He's one of us. Accept him. There's one more named in this group. There's actually uh, a a few that are named as these uh, uh, that are of the circumcision. It's Mark, Barnabas, and the next name, Jesus Justice. Jesus Justice. Next photograph, the next picture in our photograph. Jesus Justice is a surname of a sort. It means just or upright. We first hear uh, the, the surname two other times. We hear the surname two other times in the Bible. Uh, there's a Joseph Justice in Acts chapter 1, and there's a uh, Titius Justice in Acts chapter 18. Uh, So this man, Jesus Justice, had kind of a common name. Even Jesus was a common name in those days, uh, Yeshua in the the area. So sometimes you'll even find it now where uh, archaeologists who are maybe unbelievers Archaeologists will find something in the Middle East that has the name Jesus written on it, and it tells something about this person that doesn't align with the New Testament. And they're real excited that they found a piece of archaeology that to them seems to disprove the Bible. Well, in every single case, it's proven that these are, these are other uh, items. And to my knowledge, we haven't found any piece of archaeology that has disproven any, any fact in the Bible to my knowledge. Anyway, here's Jesus Justice, who was one of the converted Jews. And Paul makes a point here uh, of saying that he was a converted Jew. He was with Paul. Um, He says, these are the only ones, these are the only ones of the circumcision who are with me. And they are comforting me quite a bit. Now, Remember earlier, uh, as Paul addresses these heresies, and we start to look and say, well, as just where people are people, right? Isn't it possible that the Colossian church would then say, well, wouldn't that, if that's the case, if Judaizers are going to come in here and teach this heresy, we've got to keep them away from us 
then let's keep an eye out for anybody who looks Jewish. Let's keep an eye out and keep them out of here. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. These men are a comfort to me. Now, teach the true doctrine, don't teach falsehood, but they're a comfort to me. All right, now, down to verse 12. The next face on our picture, Epaphras. Verse 12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Areopolis. Now, in this photograph, this is the man that the Colossians, the Colossian Christians know the best. Epaphras is one of you, a Gentile. He's of Colossae. And he uh, was probably the founder, certainly the, the main discipling teacher of the church in Ephesus. He is with Paul here, uh, where Paul is imprisoned. And this is a little bit of a side note. Um, it's this particular fact that kind of speaks to what Paul's location when he writes this letter. Now, most of the time, we it's taken this for granted that Paul was in prison in Rome when he was writing this letter to the Colossians. And it may not make a lot of difference where his location was, but the way this letter is written and some of these greetings here we see at the end seem a little early for him to actually be at Rome. It may be that he's, he's, still, he's in custody, certainly, but he might still be on his way to Rome. And on his way to Rome, he might have been making sure he got these letters finished and written so that Tuicus could, could deliver them to the coast of Asia Minor, to uh, the, the places where they needed to go. So it's possible that Paul wasn't yet in Rome when he was writing this. Regardless, uh, he says that Epaphras, or Epaphras is there with him. So he's, he is with Paul here. Now, notice that word, always struggling on your behalf in prayer. Always struggling. Now, what does struggling in prayer look like? I think we can imagine that. I don't know a lot of, you know, here in our congregation, we're fairly low-key sometimes. We like to pray very uh, straightforward, basic language. I kind of like that. I don't like to really get too riled up in my prayer sometimes. But this struggling is a word that calls up uh, uh, the meaning of wrestling, struggling and wrestling. Anybody ever wrestled, like professionally or in school? Uh, any, yeah, I see you, Jack. Thanks, Jack. Anybody who's ever been a kid has wrestled. I'm talking about real, uh, real t tournament wrestling. Anybody done a tournament wrestling or anything like that? How, that's pretty hard work, isn't it? Straining, struggling. This is the kind of prayer we're talking about, where it's full-on strength, moving quickly, cunning, 
the whole time. You don't let up. You can't let up for a moment. Paul is saying that Epaphras, even here visiting him in prison, he watches Epaphras struggle in prayer. Prayer for who? Prayer for the people in Colossae. Prayer for the Christians in Colossae. Uh, so this is like uh, like wrestling or conti- continued forceful pressure. Remember in verse 2 of chapter 4, uh, a little ways up, uh, the f- phrase continues steadfastly in prayer. It's the same Greek word. Up in verse 2, it's translated steadfastly. And in verse uh, t- uh, 12, it's translated struggling. It's continual, constant pressure. Uh, like... The kind of pressure you give when you have to put, you're pushing a car. You can push all with all your might if you and your friends are trying to push a car because you ran out of gas or something. And at first, nothing seems to move. It doesn't seem to move at all. But in a moment, you feel like there's just a a hair's breadth of a move. And you keep going. And a little more movement. And a little more movement. And a little more movement. Sometimes prayer is like that. And this is the kind of prayer that Epaphras prays on behalf of the church in Colossae. He prays when he is away from them. They are always on his mind. What does he pray? He prays that they will stand mature. Stand mature, fully assured in the will of God. Now, uh, an example of standing mature, um, one thing that I think of is a very mature tree. You know, if you go right outside our door and look around, you can see some really tall, strong, mature trees that are pretty firm, hard trees. You can, if a car ran off the road and ran into that tree, the car would be wrecked and the tree may have some bark scuffed on it, but the tree's not moving anywhere. That's a mature stand. This is what Paul is praying, or this is what Barnabas is, wait, got mixed up. Okay, this is what Epaphras is praying for the people in Colossae. Now compare that to a sprout, like a, a, an acorn that just sprouted, or even a sapling. Now if you have an acorn that just sprouted and you see that little green flimsy little shoot that comes up, or a sapling that's you know, less than a uh, year or two old, um, how does a sapling withstand wind or drought or freezing rain? Maybe not very well, but a mature tree can withstand those things very, very easily, very well. Paul is saying, or Paul is saying that Epaphras prays that the church at Colossae become, that they stand mature, fully assured in the will of God. And Christian friends, don't we know that when we are confident and know God's will, Isn't it much easier to withstand the freezing rain of doubt, the drought of mockery from our family or lack of support from our friends? It is, isn't it? Paul bears witness that he sees Epaphras working hard, also working hard for the church. And he also right here mentions two other locations. I'll just briefly mention those. Laodicea and Areopolis. On a map, they're 
not far from Colossae. In fact, they're so close that Paul kind of addresses these two areas kind of in the same letter. And later on, we see that he says, share these letters among you, among these churches. It was probably fairly simple and fairly easy uh, to travel between these churches. All right, now let's move on down to verse 14. We get to see our next, uh, next person in Paul's photograph. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke, uh, and, and this is how we know that Luke is a physician, is from this description here. How many of you have, ever, have heard that before, that Luke was a physician? Um, he's also the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the writer of Acts, and he might have been a scribe for Paul in some of these, let, some of these letters to the churches. Uh, uh, not necessarily so, but he, he may have. Uh, Luke's style of researching and writing makes him one of the best historians of his time. And even, even non-believing secular historians are recognizing that now. You know, for, for generations before, you know, these, our last modern age, our last, uh, last century, generations before our last century, Luke was understood as, a, as an excellent historian, even for people who didn't believe in Christ. And that is beginning to come back into, uh, into mainstream, that he's accepted as, a, as an excellent historian. Now, another name that Paul mentions here, Demas, no description. <clears throat> Demas is named here in a, and in a couple of other letters with no description. Uh, in 2 Timothy, we see that Demas is, seems to fall away from following Christ. At least, he abandons Paul. It's a pretty uh, sad note that someone who had been with Paul uh, had abandoned the way. Now, there's others that are not with Paul, and Paul still gives uh, encouraging words about them. But with Demas... We, have, we ever hear nothing about that, about him right here in this letter. It's another reason I'm thinking this might have been written before he made it to Rome, uh, a little early in the revelation of, of, uh, of Demas' falling. Now, also here he mentions to greet the Laodiceans. Uh, as I mentioned, they're near Colossae. But uh, the name Laodicea also should be familiar to us that of the, if you go to the end of the book of Revelation... Uh, there are seven churches addressed directly in the book of Revelation, and the church at Laodicea is one of those churches addressed directly. Now, uh, we come to another name, uh, Nympha, and this is toward the end of verse 15. <clears throat> Nympha is a Christian woman, and Paul mentions the church in her house. Well, it's likely that the church in Laodicea met in her house. Certainly some church did if she wasn't in Laodicea, but it's likely that it was the church in her house. So um, that's a, a great example of someone who has opened their home uh, to the meeting of the church. And folks, one of the things that uh, a ministry that we uh, have here at Grace Church, a lot of other churches do this, where we have home churches or house groups, life groups, we call it here, that meet in different homes. Maybe you've considered being a part of a life group. Maybe you'd like to participate in some way, but you feel like you really couldn't lead the group. 
You don't have to lead the group. You can host the group. You can host the group. And even today, we're looking for people to host life groups. So if that's something you'd like to do, let one of us know. And we'd like to uh, give you an opportunity to do that. <clears throat> the next name we come to is Archippus. This is in verse 17. And Archippus, remember I mentioned that Archippus is mentioned also in the book of Philemon. And it seems like he's from the household of uh, Philemon. Probably his son, maybe not. Uh, or it, it, It's probably his son, but it doesn't have to be the way the language writes. He's certainly grown. Uh, and uh, it's likely that Archippus may be the elder or or uh, the, the lead elder of the church in Laodicea. But nevertheless, Paul has a direct commission to him, or refers to a direct commission that Archippus has. He says, well, I'll just read it, verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. What's that ministry? Well, it's not given specific. There's some clues here. We can guess what it might be. Maybe it's shepherding the flock the same way that Epaphras is shepherding the church in Colossae. Maybe his ministry is to deliver a more strongly worded message to Philemon regarding Onesimus that even Paul withholds from writing in the letter. Maybe that's it. Maybe Archippus, uh, maybe Paul uh, is giving Archippus the, uh, uh, the uh, suggestion or commission to begin to travel about just as Paul is doing. Paul is in jail and can't travel anymore. Maybe that's the mission, but we don't know what it is. But nevertheless, he encourages him to fulfill that mission. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul is giving a personal touch to the letter. He takes the pen from the scribe that's writing the letter for him, apparently, and he says, I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. Now, he does this in a couple of other letters. One, it's a personal touch with the readers. He loves these people even though he only knows them as Epaphras describes them to him. He signed some of his other letters with, this, with his own hand. It's a mark of authenticity. This is truly Paul's letter. Uh, it's also, uh, if we, all, there's a couple of other reasons why I think he may be saying he may have signed it. If you look in Acts chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, it says that the, the miraculous power of healing, for whatever reason, God's sovereignty chose to, uh, to uh, be demonstrated this way. Acts chapter 12, verse 19, pieces of, Paul's, pieces of clothing that Paul touched. 
that were then touched by others who were ill or sick. It seemed to transfer healing power to them. Now, you have to read the Bible. You have to read what Acts says about that to understand what really is going on. But by Paul signing this letter, anyone who also held that letter would be holding a piece of parchment touched by Paul. Touched by Paul. I always get a kick out of the next line after he says, I'm writing with my own hand. Remember my chains. I like to think he's saying, giving an excuse for his poor handwriting. <laughs> as just as I would do. I, my handwriting's terrible. I know you can't read this, but happy birthday or whatever I'm signing, you know. But still, I don't mean to make light. Paul wasn't really given to giving a lot of personal information or making any personal requests. But here he does open up. And he says to these Colossians, remember my chains. I am bound here, he seems to be saying. I cannot move about freely to come see you, even though I desperately do want to come see you. I cannot go on any other journeys now. I'm being led where I don't want to go. Earlier in this same chapter, he had asked them to pray for open doors here. And I think this, remember my chains, is a reminder of that. Pray for open doors to share the good news of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul knows that eventually he will be martyred. And he's reminding the readers of just that. And he will be martyred for the cause of Christ. He's also reminding us that this may one day be you too. You readers may also be wearing chains one day. You might also be led and be a martyr for Christ. Grace Church, this, <laughs> not to exaggerate, but we don't know. Our generation, maybe the next, maybe the next, even in this place. It may be us too one day. And so Grace Church, as Paul writes here, as Epaphras prayed for his church, I believe we're being asked to pray. Pray that we stand. Pray that we stand mature. Pray that we stand mature in the assurance of the will of of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift that we have in your word. Thank you for what we have to read here. Thank you for all of these people who served alongside Paul and alongside Peter and alongside so many others who spread the gospel. Lord, give us the same fervent energy in our hearts to spread your word, to spread the truth of your name wherever we go and as far as it can be spread. Lord, we thank you for what we've heard today, and I pray that your Holy Spirit plant it in our hearts and in our minds and that we are renewed by it and transformed into your, into your image, O oh God. We thank you for all these things, and we pray your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.